Hello and welcome back. I'm grateful that so many of you keep coming back week after week. This episode is sponsored by C90 Ocean Minerals, nature's most complete trace mineral salt and the one I feed to my herd. Support for this episode also provided by our generous patrons on patreon.com forward slash Red Hills Rancher. New patrons this month, Leah, Ben N., Matthew and Valerie, thank you so much for your support. You can join them today and check out all the sweet merch rewards available for my top tier supporters on Patreon.com forward slash Red Hills Rancher. My awesome sponsors at C90 sent me a huge box of sampler size products, way more than we can ever use here at the house. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give away two C90 swag packs. We're going to give away one on my Patreon page for my patrons and one in the Ranching Reboot Paddock, our private Facebook group. Check my link tree for a link to both of those places. And don't forget about the Soil Health Events calendar. You can find that at kansassoilhealth.org forward slash events, or check the show notes for a link. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Once in a while, I do that wrong, and I, I press rec- record this to the cloud, and it screws up the recording a little bit. So I had to oh, make no. sure I had the right one today. And uh, believe it or not, I've actually, instead of hitting the record button, which is right down there in the middle of the screen, I've gone over there all the way to the right corner and clicked end meeting when I meant to hit record. Uh, that's kind of embarrassing when you start off <laughs> by kicking everybody off. So yeah. Well, thanks for doing us. It's uh, it's nice to finally meet face to face. And you are Eskimo Libertarian on all forms of social media. Yes, and that's correct. Yeah. So it's 2022 and I don't want to offend anybody. Is is Eskimo not an offensive term anymore? So that is more of like a Canadian thing of like Eskimo being offensive and they prefer the term Inuit uh, up here. In Alaska, uh, it's widely accepted, and there's actually multiple different tribes of Eskimo. So, like, I'm Yupik Eskimo, and there's also Inupiaq. Uh, so, there's like three main groups of Yupik, Inupiaq, and Inuit. And so, when people are like, "Don't you mean Inuit?" I'm like, "Well, I'm not even part of the Inuit tribe. I'm part of the Yupik tribe." So that would be like if I went to Lower 48 and I said. You know, you can't say Indigenous or Native American. You have to say Cherokee. And, and, you know, people from other tribes are going to be like, well, that's not what tribe we're from. So um, it's it's widely accepted up here. There's a lot of myths out there, too, saying, like, it means raw meat eater or, you know, other forms. I've heard so many different stories of what it means. And the actual uh, origins of Eskimo is it's from the Algonquins, and it means someone who laces up their snowshoes. Interesting. Interesting. And then let's see the Algonquin people, they were from the American Northeast, like New England area. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Interesting how that word got applied, you know, all the way across the Arctic. Yeah, for sure. But I suppose, you know, when a lot of European explorers came up, you know, just like they didn't really, 
make any distinctions between the people of the plains or, you know, the mountain West, they probably didn't make very many distinctions amongst the people of the North. Yeah, exactly. And like uh, us folks along the North also look pretty similar too. like a lot of our facial features and stuff. It's actually thought that there were two waves of people that came across the land bridge of Alaska and Russia there. And like the first group went down into lower 48 and, then the second group, which is like my group, we actually have features that are, are very much more similar to like the Asian folks. And so we're believed to be the second later group that went across the land bridge. I think I've heard that before. And, you know, th that kind of makes sense. So wh what part of Alaska are you from? And is that where the Yupik tribe is from? So I'm actually not living in that uh, tribe domain. So the Yupik tribe is more on like the West Coast, Southern West Coast area. So like, if this is Alaska, it's like this big hump right here. Okay. <laughs> and um, so I'm in the Matsu Valley, which is like an hour north of Anchorage. And that's uh, where I was born or yeah, born and raised, live here currently. Uh, but I do visit my family and whatnot back in the home village of Eek. What was the name of the home village? Eek? Eek. Yeah. So the real name of the village is Eek Vikjoyak, but not a lot of people can say it or spell it. So it's just Eek. So when we get done, I'm going to go find that on a map. Yes. So E-E-K, Alaska. E-E-K, yeah. Alaska. Okay. Got it. I will. It's I a will, real thing. <laughs> I, I believe you. I mean, there's a hell Michigan. There's a North Pole, Colorado. Right. There's a Miami, Oklahoma, and a Miami, Kansas. So <laughs> strange things happen. So, really, what I, what I what I want to know because I've never really actually met anybody from Alaska. I mean, I know a couple people kind of in passing, but I never actually had a chance to sit down and talk to anybody, um, much less a native Alaskan. So, what I want to know about is is your native food culture. Yeah. Yeah, um, I can speak mainly uh, to the Yupik tribe uh, on that stuff, but it's a lot of stuff from the ocean, a lot of seafood. Um, there is some like, uh, we have caribou up here. And so for folks that don't know what caribou is, uh, there's reindeer and caribou. And people know what reindeer are. Those are domesticated. Yeah, and they call Santa sleigh. Yeah. <laughs> and fun fact so during that time of year uh the males don't have antlers during that time only the females do and so all of santa's reindeer are female if they have the antlers because <laughs> both males and females have antlers when it comes to caribou and reindeer that'll probably make a few people upset <laughs> yep rudolph is a woman late <laughs> so anyways uh yeah so I don't know. Uh, I don't know how to like go into like all the different types of food culture that we have. Okay. So this time of year, um, you know, late summer coming into fall, you guys are probably um, stocking up on fish. Yeah. So we kind of finished up most of our fishing by this time. Uh, me and my husband do as much as we can to do like subsistence hunting, fishing and gathering. Uh, so we finished up uh, our salmon. A lot of them are red salmon. Up here in Alaska, we have five different types of salmon. We have uh, so like chum and pinks and uh, silvers, kings and reds. And so most of what we have are reds. That's mostly what we got. Uh, a lot of people know reds as sockeye. 
Okay. And uh, so those are all cut up, filleted in the freezer. Uh, we just got done berry picking last weekend. So a lot of the berries are in season. Fall is starting. Like all the colors are changing. It's really nice and chill. It's like 40 to 50 degrees. So we were out there berry picking. We got blueberries, but um, <clears throat> we also have a lot of different other types of berries. Uh, we have this thing called a salmon berry, and that's where we got a lot of like our vitamin C Okay. Uh, in the area. It's like this orange berry that looks almost like a raspberry, and it's very tart, citrusy sort of flavor. Interesting. Yeah. And um, crowberries, which is our own version of blackberries, are really small black bead looking berries. So yeah gathered all those up those are in the freezer uh i like to make uh, a gudak from them which is kind of our own version of eskimo ice cream okay <laughs> and traditionally it was used like you add um a bunch of seal oil you whip it up with your hand and then you throw berries in and you freeze it uh some tribes would actually add some sort of white fish into it too okay. and some fish oil whip it all up and it was like our own version of ice cream but now they use crisco they don't use seal oil some, oh, sounds... some folks are very traditional will <laughs> doing that with crisco sounds like sounds horrible actually well you add enough sugar it's really good actually <laughs> that's that's food science in a nutshell add enough sugar and they'll eat anything <laughs> right so <laughs> lots of fat lots of sugar and some berries for flavor and it's really good <laughs> um but anyways uh moose hunting is starting but for bow hunting uh and then rifle will be soon and so moose and caribou will be uh, ramping up pretty soon here okay down here in the lower 48, we have seasons for things like, you know, you, you can only hunt white tail deer with a, you know, with a bow during, you know, these dates. I'm sure it's like that for, you know, if I wanted to come up there to Alaska and hunt, but since you're a subsistence hunter, do they have different rules for you guys? It depends on where we are. So we have different, I mean, Alaska is very fast. First off, there's always a season going on somewhere. Right. Um, but there are areas, uh, where it depends about like the federal subsistence board and then the criteria are much more loose. So uh, depending if you are considered a federally subsistence hunter or whatever, uh, some of these areas it's like, oh, you can get like 10 caribou a day. <laughs> and it's caribou is a pretty big animal. And these people are way out there. There are no grocery stores. And so these are true subsistence hunters and they're not getting 10 caribou a day uh that that's a little past subsistence but you know you can make an argument that you know there's 150 people in my extended family or clan and you know we're going to take these 10 caribou and that's going to feed us for the year right exactly so it's uh and again these places are way out there you you can only get there by a bush plane and uh so it depends on where you are in my area it's a little more urban uh, Anchorage is just an hour away, actually. And so uh, it's much more restrictive in, in my area and the surrounding units. So, right. Cause there's, there's more people there. And I see if I, the Matsu Valley, that's where most of a lot, that's where not most of, that's where quite a bit of Alaska's like produce farming is, right? 
Yeah, actually. And so uh, the Matsu Valley was actually started by the New Deal. They brought up farmers from Michigan, uh, Minnesota, and Wisconsin to start farming up here and homesteading. Okay. What do they grow? <laughs> so <laughs> we, we do have a lot of potatoes, like Yukon Golds. Um, I can imagine of, potatoes do well. <laughs> yes, <laughs> exactly. And um, I think when you look at like gardening and whatnot, we're level eight or something, or like there's not a lot of stuff that like can grow up here. Right. Uh, I saw a chart of like what can grow up here. Uh, a lot of vegetables. But what's interesting about our growing up here is uh, the soil is fairly virgin compared to the lower 48. Uh, we just had uh, glaciers come through here and deposit a bunch of minerals. So like relatively when you look at the geography and whatnot, it's fairly new land up here. Uh, so lots of vegetables. And then not only that, during the growing season, the sun is out like almost 24 seven. So these things grow massive. We have some world record size cabbage and green beans. Uh, people grow sunflowers up here. So lots of like vegetables and um, flowers grow. Oh, peonies is another big one. We're one of the larger imports or uh, exports of uh, peonies. And what's also great is our peonies bloom later than the lower 48 peonies. So it extends that peony season. That's, that's probably something that not very many people know about Alaska is yeah. export peonies to the lower 48. That's I guess, and it makes sense, you know, the crops you're kind of describing, cool season crops that that have a fairly short growing window <laughs> that can tolerate a lot of cold. Yeah, pretty much. But it, I mean, the stuff that does grow up here, man, they are massive. I love going to the Alaska State Fair and seeing, oh yeah, pumpkins, that's another one. They have massive pumpkins, but uh, just seeing all the massive vegetables that we have and they have the list of the world records for each one and seeing how close they are to it because they're competitive with world record size. Oh, I can imagine. So what, what are food prices like? I've always heard that they're high. And you know, when you, when you see ads for like, you know, Taco Bell or Domino's, they say prices may be slightly higher in Alaska and Hawaii. <laughs> like, how much is that slightly higher? Because I've heard horror stories from oh, three or four years ago of a gallon of milk being like eight bucks when it was, you know, two fifty or three dollars down here. Yes, it is very expensive up here. So here, like where I am right here. It's definitely more expensive than lower 48. Um, you can expect your grocery bill to be twice as much, uh, but it's not as bad as out in the villages where that's where you're gonna hear those extremely horror story stuff that goes viral on social media, like paying 10, 15 bucks for a gallon of milk more, you know, uh, out there because first off it has to ship up to Anchorage right. and then it's gotta ship out to the villages and it's just it's not it's, like alaska's got a well-developed network of interstate highways that trucks can right. pass down at 75 miles an hour right like exactly they want to haul a bunch like probably the average food delivery to your hometown out there in eek is loaded on a fairly small cessna single engine and flown out there and that's not necessarily the most economical mode of transportation. <laughs> right. Yeah. So that or um, a barge can actually get to our village because it's close enough to the shore. But even okay. still, 
it's we have things working against us too, like the Jones Act and whatnot, and that causes things to be much more expensive. But okay, well, it's... Well, tell us what the Jones Act is and why it's a <laughs> okay. bad thing for you. So uh, the Jones Act was made in uh, like 1910, 1911, way back. And essentially what it is that the part that affects us is that when things are being shipped from point A to point B in the U.S., including uh, Guam and Puerto Rico. Uh, and Hawaii. And Hawaii, yeah. Uh, it has to be shipped on American-made ships that are captained by Americans, have, like wave the American flag. You can't use anything else. And because of that lack of competition, we are required to use these certain vessels. It is cause these prices to quite you know inflate and they without the competition they haven't tried to make the ships any better either because we're going to be using them anyways they don't have any incentive to become better and that is also why we have so much trucking in the U.S. is because it's less expensive to use the trucking however it could be far less expensive to use the shipping if we got rid of the Jones Act and and, you know, added that extra competition and increased the efficiency and whatnot. I, I remember something within the last couple of years that they like Congress had to go in and like specifically pass a carve out for for a part of the Jones Act to do some disaster relief. So other other ships could come in to move some cargo and do disaster relief. Yeah, there's been a couple of different ones, especially like with drought. Uh, happening uh, in California and it, we're seeing we're starting to see it in other states too with drought and the best way to ship all that water is like they fill up this big bladder and float it across the ocean you know and of course they're tugging it along uh, and uh, fresh water floats on top of the ocean because the ocean's salt water right. uh, and so I've heard for that um, I I don't know what else specifically it was used for, but yeah, it has been brought up multiple times when there are disasters or mass amounts of things need to be shipped. And they're like, oh, we're running into this. This is actually making it very expensive or very difficult to do. So. And I think you're right. It was like 1910, 1912, somewhere around there. And it was so long ago that like the original intent of the law is is gone and it's not even a yes. thing anymore it's outdated but like there's only one thing more there's nothing more permanent than a temporary government program exactly and not only that something else that's interesting is alaska wasn't even a state hawaii wasn't even a state in 1910 <laughs> so now we're being affected by something that its intention was meant for you know the few states that we had not the now that we've spread across here, it's affecting us still. I never thought of that. I, I that never occurred to me. It was uh, 1946, 48? I think it was 49. Could be. Uh, no, 19. I should know this. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, it's going to bother me. Seward's Folly. I know that. Uh, yes. Yes. <laughs> It's okay. I get caught out without knowing a fact every once in a while. 59. There we go. 59. I knew it was a nine at the end. Yep. 59. Wow. Yeah, not that long ago. You know, we, we have a strange perception of time. Like, 
So where I live, this area was settled in the 1880s, 1890s. It was opened up for Homestead Act. Like this was this is all Homestead Act settled land. And I lived in Norfolk, Virginia for a little over eight years, almost nine years while I was in the Navy. And you know, you're you're there, you're around Jamestown and Smithfield and Williamsburg, you know, all the really, really old places, you know, that have three, four hundred years of history. I had a friend that bought a house that was 175 years old. Like, okay, cool. I come back to here and things are, you know, if something's a hundred years old, it's old. Like it's yeah. been there a long time. And just uh, a few weeks ago, probably, well, I don't know, like six or eight episodes ago, as the podcast goes, we talked to my friend Katie up in Cora, Wyoming. And so that's like West central Wyoming and where Cora is, it's kind of in a bowl of, of a couple mountain ranges and they didn't even get telephones and electricity in the Valley until 1960. And that's in the lower 48. <laughs> so, yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's kind of interesting. Um, so the village that my family is from, they didn't get indoor plumbing until just a few years ago. Okay. <laughs> I, we don't need to talk about what life's like in Alaska without indoor plumbing in <laughs> January. Because I imagine it's not too pleasant. It's not the most fun when you have to go to the river and get water and <laughs> all that stuff. So, yeah. Is is that what it's still like in Eek? Is there, do you guys still have to get your own water? And, um, it seems like most places, especially the places with elders, have faucets and they're able to get water that way. But, uh, I don't know if all houses have that yet. Um, it's just very recently that they have like indoor plumbing and, showers and whatnot okay um you you threw out a term earlier you said federal subsistence hunter and that sounds like an official government like designation or, or like category yes. so what what exactly is that so uh 60 of alaska is owned by the federal government and it's like owned, managed by the federal government. And that's a lot of land. People don't realize how big Alaska is. If you put Alaska on top of like the lower 48, we would take up two thirds of the lower 48. And so 60% of our state is managed by the federal government, which is a lot. Uh, so they have this thing called the Federal Subsistence Board. And they have their own definition of like, if you are a subsistence hunter in these areas and these areas are like millions of acres big and there's multiple regions of it uh then you fall under the federal subsistence board and lately it's been uh pretty problematic there have been people on the board that have been shutting down whole units to hunting like oh there's not enough sheep so we're gonna shut down you know sheep hunting here and we have doll sheep up here so those are the ones with like the big horns okay. that circle around uh, are they delicious yes they're very hard to get maybe that's why they're delicious it's it's very difficult to get to those ones uh so th there's been multiple times that they're shutting out millions of acres even though like just lately there was a a section that they closed down to sheep hunting even though that they got 20 people or 22 people to testify like no we shouldn't close down this hunting. And there were two people that are like, I'm not seeing any sheep. We should close it down. 
So they closed it down and they're allowing people like one or two individuals in each group to shut down hunting in the entire like millions of acres. And so lately it's been abused by, by that. So it's been quite frustrating actually. I can't imagine that that is a non-elected official that's accountable to nobody. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know the exact workings of it yet, but um, I plan to look more into it because this was brought up by my husband and he's, you know, frustrated about uh, people like there's even a section close to here where it's a similar story. They closed down moose hunting and caribou hunting. Um, the guy was saying, oh, there's too much traffic coming through here. It's scaring all the animals away. And they shut down massive amounts. I mean, this place is like the size of Wisconsin that they shut down. So it's it's been an issue up here. And I plan to look more into it. But uh, it's something that people don't quite realize is how much of Alaska is regulated by D.C. Yet we are thousands of miles away from D.C., kind of hard to go protest at the Capitol. <laughs> yeah, I, I kind of understand what it's like, you know, feeling like you're a long ways from the Capitol, but um, you're probably three or four times as far as I am. So I <laughs> <laughs> and and I imagine your situation with Juno is is kind of the same, too, because Juno is a totally different environment. Um, you know, it's totally different climate, totally different politically and probably totally different culturally. And it seems like Juno is just down in this little itty bitty area way off in the corner and then there's this whole big other area of alaska to explore right it's the only way to get there is by boat or by plane you can't drive there uh and it's literally in the bottom right corner of alaska it's really close to seattle actually and then there's the rest of alaska (laughs) so it's quite a journey to get there i've actually been to Juneau before so i had a fly there when I was in high school to play high school soccer against the Juno high school team. <laughs> Interesting. Well, tell me about that a little bit. High school sports. <laughs> like you guys are just like eight of you just hop on a Cessna and fly halfway across the state to play soccer. <laughs> Practically. Yeah. We were in a little jet and our team took up most of the plane. We might as well have chartered a plane <laughs> and uh yeah we flew there and played a couple games so we played them twice and then we flew back but uh we had to do that two years and then uh another two years they had to fly to us and we would play games all the way in Juneau we also had to drive all the way to Fairbanks which is like a six-hour drive and uh we'd play that's those not like an easy six-hour drive from <laughs> <laughs> right and so I mean, it's never easy being in a bus with six other ladies that are super hormonal in high school. Much less <laughs> for six hours down really awesome roads, I'm sure. <laughs> right. Yeah, it wasn't the worst road, but yeah, it was, it, we had to travel and then we had to drive down to like Soldatna and that's like a four hour, four and a half hour drive, maybe five. Yeah. So we had to travel far and wide but it's not as bad as like out in the villages you have to like take snow machines uh you folks call them snowmobiles we call them snow machines or snow goes uh the whole village will get together and drive their snow machines to the neighboring villages so for different games i that's i kind of want to know more about that but it's probably one of those things you just kind of have to kind of have to experience and see you know like oh 
it's you know the middle of december we're gonna go hop on our snow machines and ride through the dark for 25 miles to go to this other town and play basketball <laughs> if you're ever interested espn actually did a 30 30 show um about basketball in rural alaska because it's actually a really big thing out here so go check that out it's a it's really well done i'll have to see if i can't find that maybe on youtube and throw a link in the show notes because that that could be really that could be an interesting diversion (laughs) (laughs) right (laughs) so what's food like in the winter so i do uh go out hunting during the winter we have oh First off, it's hard because it's really cold. First off, <laughs> um, I'm talking like negative really forty. Re- negative forty. Yeah, negative forty without the wind chill. Depends on where you go, but when we go caribou hunting, it the wind is ripping through. We're up on top of a mountain. It's like negative thirty, negative forty at the worst, and uh, it sucks. You have to cover all of your skin. So I'm like. Like you only, I look like a ninja. You only see my eyes, (laughs) but yeah, you definitely want to cover all the skin that you can because it's going to be like frostbite in no time at all. Uh, We use really good gear. Uh, And a lot of the animals too, they're changing color. So you see foxes and ptarmigan, they're changing their color so that they blend in with the white. Uh, I really like ptarmigan. It's kind of like a What's funny is Alaska is state bird is grouse. Uh, it's similar. Okay. Uh, there are diff- they are different. Um, but ptarmigan is our state bird, and we're the only state that's allowed to hunt its own state bird. Okay. <laughs> so they have like a body, a nice big plump body, and then a little tiny head. They look kind of funny, but uh, and they're also really stupid. <laughs> <laughs> they'll stay there perfectly still until you're practically stepping on them and then they're like you know explode or whatever but uh yeah going hunting for those uh I haven't done a lot of predator hunting so there's fox and wolves I would like to do that at some point uh just because their fur is really nice and um I have family that can help me with sewing furs and whatnot uh, there's probably not much of a market for furs though is there there definitely is we even have this thing called ferrandi and it's like before the iditarod uh traditionally everyone came in traded their furs and whatnot and uh because we have some probably of the more exotic type furs so like sea otter and uh other types of otter wolves fox or like arctic fox uh up here and so those are really nice furs that people seek after especially like that sea otter i don't know if you ever felt sea otter is the softest fur you've like if you've ever pet a chinchilla that's i don't know i'm trying to think of other things that are similar it's it's the softest fur you've ever felt and it's extremely warm if you look at the density of the hairs it's some of the most dense if not the most dense fur that you can find and so very highly valuable fur and we also have a uh, muskox fur that's woven into like a yarn they call it quivute and uh it's and the- muskox that's a pretty large that's a kind of a cow right thousand pound or so yeah it's pretty big if you look at them they're like big beefy fluffy things with like curved horns and uh they sound like a dinosaur it's weird like i don't even it's like this guttural dinosaur sound it's crazy you'd have to look it up 
I, I can't even mimic it. <laughs> but people do farm them up here. Okay. So they, they can be kind of domestic, probably they can be domesticated about as well as bison can be domesticated. Essentially, yeah. But their fur is highly valuable. And so there is uh, a muskox farm just down the road from me, actually. So interesting. Interesting. And then the other direction is the reindeer farm. So. <laughs> Introducing C90 Ocean Minerals. C90 offers complete nutrient support for today's farm and ranch. With over 90 minerals and trace elements in nature's perfect balance, C90 remineralizes soil, increases pasture quality, and elevates the wellness of your herd. Enjoy improved drought resistance, increased pasture protein and RFV values, and the elimination of pink eye and foot and hoof rot. Originally discovered by Dr. Maynard Murray, C90 is the only product that meets his standards for sea energy agriculture, including a living ocean source and elevated amounts of macro and trace elements. Freshly created in the Sea of Cortez and OMRI certified, C90 is free from pollutants and contaminants, including microplastics. Visit C90.com to learn more today. That's S-E-A-90. Com. C90 is available through distributors across the U.S., including over 200 tractor supply locations. Click the link in the show notes to find the dealer nearest you. We're always looking to grow our network. Give us a call or email today and be sure to mention that Ranching Reboot sent you. Please check the show notes for all the contact information. Now back to this week's episode. Hey, so you you mentioned the Iditarod sled dog race. Now, I know what that is because... I'm a nerd and I just, I'm a sponge for information. So what is the Iditarod sled dog race for the people that don't know? Yeah. So it is a 1,049 mile uh, race, a sled dog race that goes from Anchorage to Nome. And so a lot of people think that it, it has to do, like it has to mimic the, the vaccine run or the the serum run from Anchorage that's, to That's what I've Nome. always heard. That is actually a myth, and the people that developed the Iditarod, they didn't intend to do that. They intended to make a 1,000-mile race, and then they added 49 miles because we're the 49th state, and it just happens to go from Anchorage to Nome. Uh, even though there, a lot of people do draw that distinction, they're like, no, that's not what it's from, but it like it's hard to not draw that conclusion. <laughs> so I don't know. They're... One of those things that's just such an incredibly strong coincidence. Right, exactly. And for those that don't know, the serum run is like in Nome, there was a sickness that broke out, they needed medicine, they could not fly anything in, they couldn't get any trains in, nothing. And so they had uh, pretty much like a relay uh, of sled dogs, and they each did sections, and they took the serum from Anchorage to Nome and uh, saved the whole town. It was like this big heroic thing. And a lot of people think of Balto, but actually the dog that saved everyone was Togo. And they changed it to Balto because Togo was the name of a Japanese admiral in yes. World War II. And, you know, with propaganda and whatnot, they, they changed the name. So, hmm. Uh, Anyways, yeah, the Iditarod is a, a race. It's not a relay race like the um, vaccine run. You you do the whole thing yourself. So. It's 1,049 miles. Now, how long, like, the winner does it in, what, like, a couple of days? Yeah, he does it in, like, seven days. It takes, like, a week, I would say. I haven't been looking at times lately. They've been getting faster and faster. So, a, a, 
a week to 10 days, like not even, not even the, the guys that are really pushing hard up front. Like some of these guys are out there for 10 days mm-hmm. in the bush, in the snow, mostly in the dark with yes. everything they need for them and their dogs on the sled. There are checkpoints. So checkpoints where they can drop supplies and whatnot. Right, so. but, but they've got to keep at least a couple of days food with them, you know, yes. for them and their dogs yes. and water. Yeah. And they're hauling all of this crap 1,049 miles across the Arctic. Yes. Like, yeah, Kobe Bryant, go throw your ball. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. It's insane what they do. And a lot of people think that this is hard on the dogs, but the thing is, these dogs, they do work hard, but because they have a purpose and a job and this is what they're designed to do, they're some of the happiest dogs you've ever met. There's nothing happier than a dog doing the job that it's been taught to do. Yeah, they feel like they have a sense of purpose and it's actually been shown when dogs don't have a sense of purpose, they get depressed. So actually, I had kind of interesting conversation the other night. I didn't really intend to tend to go this way, but uh we were talking about dogs and so like 150 years ago before we had, you know, processed bag dog food, how many people would have had dogs 150, 200 years ago? Your, your average tradesperson probably would not have had a dog. The, the outdoorsman, the people that raised, raised livestock, cared for livestock would probably have dogs. And then the upper class may have dogs, right? True. I didn't even think of that. Yeah. And the, and I, you know, part of this conversation, I was thinking about, you know, preparing for this interview and I was thinking about, you know, how, how they do things up in, you know, Northern Canada and Alaska, y'all have a lot of sled dogs and sled dogs have been a part of native culture for a long time. And my theory is this, because there's a lot of animals up there that are good for, you know, they're good for hunting that are very rich in fat. So there's a cheap, there's an economical fuel source for sled dogs available up there. And that's why a lot of the transportation in the North has been sled dogs. Is that, do I have yeah. any of that anywhere close to right? Uh, I would say so. Um, yeah, it was convenient. I mean, being able to haul things. Another thing is we're very nomadic people. And so being able to haul stuff is very valuable. And so being able to have a companion that can help haul your materials, you know, uh, and like the elderly and, you know, the pregnant and the small children and whatnot is very valuable for a nomadic lifestyle. Before the Plains Indians got the horse, they, they would use dogs and, and little travelies. Like little, you know, just two little poles, they pull behind the dog. And I mean, I can't imagine that, you know, a 40 or 50 pound dog would, would be able to pull a whole lot across the plains powered on a diet that, that they'd be able to get out here. I mean, certainly they wouldn't be as strong as, you know, one that's been raised on, you know, whale fat and seal meat for a long time. Exactly. Yeah. Our, our food is very rich. It's a very like keto diet type, you know, a lot of protein, a lot of fat a lot of that and uh it's kind of like I've actually tried the keto diet and it actually really agreed with me and I felt great and but I really like donuts and ice cream so <laughs> it's <laughs> difficult to say on it but um I can no, empathize. 
<laughs> right? And like earlier, I had mentioned seal oil. It's a very valuable part of the diet. A lot of energy stored in there. Uh, and seal oil was used in a lot of different foods. You could like dip your dried fish into it, dried meats, like dried caribou into seal oil. You can whip it up and make your own like Eskimo ice cream, as I mentioned, agouda. Um, very valuable. And that was much more of our region. We didn't have as much whaling in our tribe. That's more of like Northern Yupik, Anupiak area. They would have more of the whaling, but we had a lot of seal and that's what we would do. Um, and a lot of salmon too. Salmon's really good. Because where your people are from, they didn't have whales. They had seals. The whales were all <laughs> farther up the coast, right? Yeah. Yeah. Very rarely. Um, I mean, you hear of like a beluga, you know, th those will hit like some of the some of our areas and can actually get up the river a little easier, but they're a smaller whale. So how does, how would food preservation work without electricity? There is a lot of cold curing. So uh, like there's this uh, example where you cut up salmon, you know, you cut it up and then you soak it in like a brine and then you bury it underground for a certain amount of time and you cold cure it. And it's similar process as how sushi is made. And so with that cold cure, then you dig it back up, you know, unravel it, you clean out the brine so it's not so salty and whatnot. And it's preserved like that. Uh, another way is drying. You can dry stuff, you can smoke it. Um, and I mean, the winter is a freezer as it is. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> that that helps a lot. I, uh, <laughs> I, I kind of almost wrote down the dumb question. How do you keep your meat fresh in the winter? And then I like, oh, wait a minute. What's the average <laughs> winter temperature in Alaska? <laughs> exactly. Put it outside. So that helps. But in order to get it to that point, a lot of drying, cold curing is done. Now what we do, I mean, we have like vacuum sealers, uh, I do have family that still dries fish and I love dry fish. It's like a salmon as a jerky, but it's very oily and I, I love it. I love that stuff. <laughs> you ever have a moment of weakness and buy salmon from the grocery store? Never. Never? Never. Not even when, when I was in the lower 48, I did. Okay, great. But here, no, we are pretty good at our fishing and- but so you're a wild caught girl and you yeah. had some store bought. Did you, how much of a difference did you notice? Oh, so much. The color, uh, first off the color, like, so our salmon is very red and vibrant and just beautiful color. And then the store bought, it was like a pink, I don't know, it looked sick in comparison. Like you shouldn't be that color. <laughs> and also the taste, like here the, taste is just rich and you don't need any seasoning you don't need tartar sauce it's just it's good and then the store-bought stuff I'm like oh that's why they use tartar sauce or that's why they use seasoning like it's bad <laughs> covered up with ketchup or something else sweet right so the flavor is just so much better and I also like feel good you know uh, there's I'm very in tune with like when I hunt and fish my own food how much better I feel compared to having store-bought like either steaks or salmon or whatnot okay let's let's chase that rabbit a little bit do you think that is that because of it's more nutrient-dense food 
or because you have a more intimate connection with that food and you respect it because you're the one that harvested it? I think there is a mixture of both. If you look at like practices of farmed salmon versus wild caught salmon and what their diets are, I, I mean, I'm not a biologist by any means. I'm actually just an engineer. Uh, so, but I mean, the fact that your food looks so different, tastes so different, there's gotta be a difference. And like, I uh, also like com the comparison of steak. I don't normally eat beef. I eat caribou steak and moose steak. And so that is something that agrees with my body a whole bunch more than like beef steak, even though like having a beef steak does taste good every once in a while. <laughs> and I, I was going to ask, you know, you, you haven't mentioned eating any beef and probably most of my listeners are primarily beef eaters and they're thinking about eating caribou and seal fat and they're going, um, maybe but they're <laughs> thinking about that ribeye later. Right. Right. Um, so what's been your experience with beef? Like, have you gotten um, any straight off a farm or are you just mostly out of a grocery store or restaurant? I haven't gotten it off a farm, though I would I would like to do that. But um, it's a little, a little more tough up here. Right. Uh, so uh, most of my stuff has been from the grocery store. And I'm sure most of your listeners are like cringing, like, oh, that's why, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so I. But you uh, eat that, bear. So like they can, yes. they can suck it. <laughs> <laughs> right. I catch most of my food. So there. <laughs> Yeah, you probably hunt your own bear too, so. Yeah, actually, there's three bear pelts sitting over there. Awesome. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, nobody can give you any crap about buying beef at the store if you're out hunting bear. I'm sorry. It's just, that's that's how it's going to work. That's how it's okay. going to be. <laughs> that's good. I like that. So when is bear season? Uh, so it depends. There are different types of bears that you can be getting. So first off, there will be spring bear bear that's freshly coming out of its hibernation cave or whatnot they haven't eaten a lot but their meat is very very tender and okay. so that's a good bear to get uh and you can either get black bear or brown bear at that point and then are, later are brown on bears also kodiak bear uh, so that's a Kodiak grizzly. Okay. There's supposedly a difference between brown and grizzly again I'm not a biologist I'm just a right. hunter <laughs> Uh, but it depends on where you go and their diet. Oh my gosh. Those Kodiak grizzlies though, those things are massive. And I can't even like emphasize enough how massive those animals are because like they're eight, nine feet. Oh, they're huge. Just yeah. But probably about that big, if not bigger. And then not only that, they're just round and they look so cute, but I'm telling Until you, they stand up and scream at you. Right, exactly. <laughs> they're little cute round ears and they're all fluffy and they got big butts and whatever and it's just so cute. But no, they're they're absolutely terrifying. <laughs> I'm not really selling it well, but they're terrifying. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and then later on in the year, so kind of like closer to this time of year, uh, I would still wait a little bit longer when there are blackberries that have been sitting in blueberry patches and been eating blue nothing but blueberries for a few weeks. A blueberry bear is amazing like it, it affects the flavor of the meat their fat is purple from the blueberries yes it's okay. literally purple so you can like throw some fat they have a lot of fat on them so you take huge chunk of fat throw it in the pan get it all melted and then you throw some slabs of uh meat on there 
and you like fry it in its own fat and it's it's blueberry fat oh it's so good <laughs> you probably don't need to eat very much of that to keep you going for a couple of days no no not at all it's and it's like it's a type of full where you're not feeling like bogged down and like oh man it's like you have good energy and you feel warm and you can go do things you know wow yeah so what do you hunt bear with what do you take with you when you go hunt bear <laughs> so luckily it's it's mainly my husband that's hunting um i i have a cva cascade and is that a that's a muzzle loader no so this one isn't i know cva is known for their muzzle loaders but right. this one isn't so uh which i was kind of surprised i want to actually add an outdoor banquet uh the alaska outdoor banquet uh so still yeah. black powder though no so no it's, yeah so uh I was really, I don't know. I don't know if they're like branching into something and, you know, branching out of what they do currently and just trying this out. So anyways, uh, my husband, oh man, what does he use? He keeps changing it up on me and, oh, and he's like, wouldn't it be nice if I got this round or if I got this gun? And so I don't know which ones he's gotten lately. <laughs> Scared to go look. <laughs> sounds like, uh, sounds like every other hunter I know. <laughs> right. Or I see a receipt. And I'm like, did you go to sportsman's? <laughs> He's like, oh, <laughs> no, that was last month. <laughs> oh, you went to sportsman's last month. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, I kind of had to have an awkward conversation with uh, with my reader of the credit card statements not too long ago. I uh, I bought a mental health firearm for myself and um, <laughs> neglected to mention it to her before the credit card statement showed up. She came and was like, um, what's this? I, I bought a gun. <laughs> Oh my gosh, I might have to share that with my husband. He would love that. <laughs> Mental health firearm purchase. Right. Or it's like, oh, it's our anniversary. I got myself a gun. <laughs> yeah. All right. I got this new one. So now you could carry this one of mine that you liked. Right. It's yeah. a his and hers matching set. No, exactly. So I would have to ask my husband more of what rounds he does, but uh because he he'll go out there usually for the bears. I am more of the caribou. And um, I mean, I've gone moose hunting before, but it's been a few years. So I'm a new mom, you know, and so juggling that and getting back into the hunting scene, I've been doing much more of the easier hunts lately. So Fair and enough. fishing, fishing's easy to do with a baby. <laughs> so what's it like? Um, what's it like in the winter? So as as we're recording this, uh, kind of what is it mid-august um it'll be i'm actually kind of ahead i'm doing good so it'll be like down into september by the time this one comes out what's the daylight like i mean obviously days are days are getting shorter do you have full dark in anchorage uh not full dark but the sun will like just barely make it above the horizon and just hover there and then go back down and <laughs> it's not a lot and so it's still pretty dark it's not a full daylight light it's kind of if you aren't staying active it can be very depressing <laughs> so how do you how do you guys fight that you just go out and hunt all winter and fish 
yeah, we go out hunting. We do a bunch of activities, uh, whether it's cross-country skiing or snowshoeing. Uh, lately, I've been doing a lot more sh uh, snowshoeing because that's easier to do with the baby on the back. Uh, but we should be able to get more into skiing. I've seen people who cross-country ski with the baby on them. I'm like, mm, nope, that's not for me. <laughs> so that would be a little too difficult for me. Uh, cross-country skiing is one of those activities that sounds and looks deceptively easy. It's difficult. Luckily, I competed in high school, so I have some experience, but I still would not want to have a baby on me because I know of some of the crashes that I've had, and that would not end up well. <laughs> okay, you competed in cross-country skiing in high school. Yes. I guess that makes complete sense because it'd probably be kind of hard to have a lot of track and field events in Alaska. I mean, that's in the fall or in the spring, but yeah, so there's cross country running in the uh, fall that a lot of folks did, and then they went right into cross country skiing, and then they go into track. That's what a lot of folks did, but I did cross country running, cross country skiing, and then soccer, so. Okay, now I got to know what other really weird winter sports do y'all do up there? There's also Not the weird, NYO. weird, I guess. Like, <laughs> <laughs> they're not going to be right. weird, just Unique. uncommon. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So we have the NYO, which is the Native Youth Olympics. And that is like actual, like traditional games and contests that different varying tribes had. And so like, uh, there's this one all about this. It sounds yeah. interesting. Yeah. So there's this one where like you suspend a ball and you have to like jump up with both feet and hit it with both feet and land on your feet. And they try to increase the height of that ball and so I think the record is like eight feet the ball was and if you see these people jump I mean they're jumping their feet hit go above their head and they still land and there's different variations of it too um, but yeah that's like the two foot high kick uh, there's this one where you start on the ground and you have to hold on to one of your feet and then the other foot hits the ball and you have to land on that same foot and your hand is on the ground and it kind of looks like you're in the crab position the whole time. But yeah, okay. people will be hitting like six feet up in the air and doing practically like jumping up into a one-handed handstand to reach their foot all the way to it. It's crazy. You got to look this stuff up. <laughs> I, I'm, yeah, Native Youth Olympics? Yep. Either Native Youth Olympics or the adult version is the WEIO, the World Eskimo Indian Olympics. WEI. Oh, that's that's a big salad of vowels that I just about didn't parse correctly. <laughs> that's okay, but yeah, that is something that is very unique up here. Very cool. Um, a couple other things that I kind of had had written down here, and you know, I will actually stay true to my word. If you don't want to talk about, it, we can edit this out. But uh, okay. Like the Indian Adoption Project and the Indian Child Welfare Act of 1978. Um, can you maybe unpack some of those and what they were, what they were supposed to do, and how bad they are today? Yeah, I can go into that. Uh, so firstly, the Indian Adoption Project. So that was something that was put forward by uh, U.S. Congress and specifically written in the project. Uh, they practically quoted that the purpose of this project is to take uh, 
they use the term Indian, Indian children and putting them in non-Indian homes. They specifically wrote that out. That was the intention of the project. Uh, so basically they set, the, set up this criteria of when they could come in and take native children from their homes. Uh, and it was Forcefully. pretty, uh, yes. So they were, they're like, if you resisted, you went to prison type of thing. And pretty much so they came in, some of the criteria included things like uh, too many people in the home. We'll see if you look at multiple different cultures, a lot of people have homes that are filled with family that aren't just the nuclear family of mom, dad, and children. They'll have aunts, uncles, uh, multiple generations like grandma and grandpa, uh, cousins and whatnot. And that's normal for a lot of different cultures, including Native American cultures. So someone would come in, see that there's multiple generations or too many people, as they put it, and take the children. And that was a double standard. If it, they saw Native families with that, they would go in and take the children. Another thing is uh, indoor plumbing. If there isn't indoor plumbing, they can take the children. The thing is, when this was implemented in the 50s and 60s, uh, there were a lot of like rural places that didn't have like indoor plumbing at that time. And, and even now in 2022, indoor yeah. plumbing is simply not practical in large parts of Alaska because you can't put a pipe in the dirt. Yeah, it's very difficult. Not only like with permafrost and stuff, we also have earthquakes and it's, it's a very difficult engineering task to overcome. So and it's it costs a lot of money. So. Uh, and there were multiple like different folks like in farming communities during that time that didn't have like indoor plumbing, at least to the standards that they were talking about. But if it was a native family without indoor plumbing, you could take the children. So there were multiple different criteria like that where it was a double standard, vaguely written, like vaguely enough written that they could take any children they wanted. And they took a lot of children by 19, I believe it was 63. I don't have my notes on me. Uh, one in four native children were living away from their family. That's 25%. Of native children away from their family it's an insane number and so these children were sold to predominantly white suburban families and how that happened too is you just out... said sold yeah like literally like literally the government would confiscate them confiscate the child and then sell them with an exchange of currency to an, a white family yes Okay, I just wanted to make sure that I, that I we were crystal clear that, that that wasn't... Okay, go on. I'm sorry. Yeah. No, for sure. Like, all the paperwork and fees and everything associated with, being, you know, the adoption is going to the government and funding this program. So there was an exchange of currency. And uh, it, I bet there's 300 million people living in America that don't know this crap was happening 70 years ago. Exactly. And people like people are still alive today that are victims of this, you know, and so like people that were like given to adopting families uh, and how they were able to be so successful. Like one of the reasons is the government made these ads in like good housekeeping magazines and whatnot that were predominantly going to white suburban neighborhoods saying that there are all these native children, they need loving homes and they're the unwanted or the forgotten child and pulling at the heartstrings of 
all these families and they're like, yes, we'll take in these children, these poor, poor children. And that's how they were able to be so successful. So that was the Indian Adoption Project. And even still today, uh, Native children are four times more likely to be taken uh, to go into the system, you know, like foster and adoption and whatnot, uh, than white children. It's still like... Is that a national statistic you're quoting or just yes. for last? Okay. That's a national statistic. And so that's still an issue today, even though... Uh, ICWA was put into place, and that was the Indian Child Welfare Act. And so a lot of times in the news and whatnot, they refer to it as ICWA. And so that um, essentially it, it made it harder to deem that a child needed to be taken. And then also if a child should be taken, there was a criteria or there was a list of who the child can go to and you had to go down the list. And so first off, it was the child had to go to family. And if that wasn't available, the child had to go to another family that was within the same tribe. And if that wasn't available, it had to go to a Native American family, just in general, even if it's not from a different tribe. And uh, there's, this part gets kind of iffy, like if the parent approves of a fostering parent that isn't, uh, part of that list then it's okay and there's ways to go around it kind of but this was so that native children stayed within the community weren't being sent away so far and to predominantly non-native homes so sounds like a, an efficient well-run government program that accomplished its objectives <laughs> pretty much it it really did and so it's very sad seeing the residual effects of it. I, I'm part of the generation of Native Americans that are trying to reconnect with our culture and language values and whatnot. So uh, we're definitely seeing much more of a shift of coming back and trying to relearn everything. And I think that's that's true in a lot of in a lot of different ways. It's it almost seems like just generationally we've gotten kind of fed up with the current system and we will all want to relearn some old ways. You know, we want to relearn how to better, you know, live in harmony with our environment without completely destroying everything. You know, there's some modern conveniences that are awful nice. Air conditioning for me, I'm sure like <laughs> oil heat for, for y'all up there, you know, that makes life a lot more tolerable in our environments. Um, but at the same time, We've got to maybe learn to live a little bit in a little bit better balance with the resources that that are available to us and make make better use. Um, Absolutely. So we we talked about beef earlier, and like everybody's seen the the show with the Kilchers. What what is it called? I forget. Uh, they're they're out by Homer and they have a cattle ranch. Um, like you seriously? Oh, you know what's really funny actually? So. I just gotta say really quick a lot of people are like oh have you seen this alaskan show and i'm like no i haven't seen any of them <laughs> I, I, so, I get that i thought you might at least be you know uh, kind of familiar with with who i was talking about but um anyway they you know i don't watch the show either i, I don't okay. watch, i don't watch a lot of tv so it, it's cool That's um, but i've watched you know three or four enough to know that uh you know they have cows and they raise cows 
Mm-hmm. And I would assume that, you know, when you have a bear or a caribou, like you're out there, you know, you're disassembling it so you can pack the thing out of the woods. Um, so if somebody, it, if somebody had an animal, they wanted to go get processed, like, or they had a cow, they wanted to go get processed. Is there anywhere in Alaska that you can take an animal to a, like a USDA plant, and have it disassembled? There's plenty of places around here that will do the cutting up for you. Cause there, we also get a lot of tourists right. and like, they want their stuff handled. You know, a lot of them are like, oh, it's lucky, you know, <laughs> um, but uh, we even take some stuff to um, different meat processing places. Uh, it's these like small mom and pop meat processing uh, because they have really good recipes. So like uh, caribou brats, if you go to Indian Valley Meats, they have the best caribou brat recipe ever. We love it. We can't do it well ourselves. So we'll pay the money to have someone do it for us. And it's a really great price. And um, also like they took some of the bear meat, made some bear bacon. And I don't, so I don't, uh, whenever I have pig, it really upsets my stomach, including bacon, but I can have bear bacon. <laughs> and so that's fair. That, that, that stuff's really good. Or like a pastrami cut, you know, some of the more specialty type meat stuff. I'll say that there is a massive difference in pastured pork bacon and industrial CAFO bacon. Like okay, a, I, I can't tolerate the CAFO bacon as as well as I can tolerate the pastured pig bacon. I mean, it it doesn't it doesn't upset my stomach, doesn't make me run to the bathroom or anything, but my stomach knows. I mean, it it definitely knows when when I'm eating, you know, hamburger from the grocery store or whether, you know, it's something we got for one of my friends. For same sure. With pork, same with chicken too. Yeah, exactly. So that uh that's probably why I I've had trouble with having like pork and whatnot. Uh, or any sort of like pig products is where it's coming from. And I would be totally willing to try, you know, from a farm or from a local farm type deal. But yeah, there are, there are places up here that will do cuts for you, like, you know, flaying fish, cutting up different animals or doing some of those specialty type meat process type stuff. So. Okay. Very cool. So I guess uh, we'll we'll kind of cruise in to the second part of your name, Eskimo Libertarian, <laughs> <laughs> without getting too horribly overtly political. Um, I guess it, you communicate extremely well on Facebook with memes. Like I, every time I see a meme on Facebook, it usually has Eskimo Libertarian you know, as the credit <laughs> down in the corner. So maybe like, what are, what is a libertarian and what isn't a libertarian? Yeah. Uh, I would say libertarian is someone who advocates for far less government than what we have and looking at things in terms of like consenting to different uh, government types stuff. like being able to opt out of government things would be a libertarian uh, idea. And so it's also the idea of like, don't hurt others, don't take their stuff, you know, kind of leave each other alone <laughs> uh, sort of things. And so it's the idea that government has come in and really messed things up, destroyed different industries, uh, 
and has just is not the best solution for these things and the best person for the solution is yourself so uh that's kind of like libertarianism in a nutshell i would say and i started my page because like covid hit and i didn't realize that government had the powers that they were using like i'm like oh the government is able to do that like they're allowed to do that and then it made me realize i need to pay attention and the more i paid attention the more i was like okay something needs to be done so like any good millennial i started a meme page (laughs) (laughs) but uh, i also do a lot of like uh volunteering you know like volunteerist sort of uh, activities i already was a, a big advocate on volunteering for your community and whatnot and I had those libertarian tendencies I was a libertarian just didn't know it yet type of thing I think there's a lot of people that are and are tricked into voting for one of the other two teams because yeah the, the word's just not getting out there essentially and so that's what I'm hoping with these memes like using humor and you know like or something that just grabs your attention because on social media, you only have a very short window to grab someone's attention. And so being able to grab their attention and like convince them with humor has been the most effective means I've seen with uh, spreading the movement. I'm not a, f- a very funny guy, which is why I got to sit down and do this for two hours to get some content. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> it's okay. It, it took a lot to get to refine my art or whatever. <laughs> And it is, it's, it's an interesting process. Like as, as your page grows, your audience grows, you know, you, you kind of branch and you, you know, you try different messages or you try different formats and, you know, once you, once your audience kind of gets that critical mass, you start getting enough feedback regularly. You're like, okay, now I know what's working. Now I know what's working. And the, you know, the success just builds on the success. I kind of feel like I'm maybe about a half a step away from that. (laughs) (laughs) That's fair. Yeah, I definitely do get feedback. And when a post flops, I'm like, oh, man, that didn't do well. That didn't land right. (laughs) You know, and uh, I've also like sprinkled in there living in Alaska type stuff because people are are always wanting to learn more. So, well, I mean, for sure. So how does how does being I mean, back up. So it, it sounds like, you know, when COVID hit, you just you came to the realization while you're watching a government you know take all this overreach shut things down you know enforce authority on private businesses that they shouldn't have the authority to enforce from my point of view you know we only the government only has as much power as we let them and payable by fine means legal for a price i mean so there's two kinds of laws payable by fine which means legal for a price or they're going to threaten you with court. And even if they threaten you with court and it's, you know, a misdemeanor, you don't show up for court. A guy with a gun is going to show up and throw you in a box. Like that's the end result payable by fine or a guy with a gun shows up to throw you in a box. Right. And like, okay, so wearing a mask is a law now. Wait a minute. You're going to call a guy to come here and pull a gun on me because I don't want to put a piece of cloth on my face. That doesn't make sense. Like that's, that's, that's not an effective use of public resources. And I think that a lot of us really started to question things in March of 2020, you know, why are we allowing this? And 
the really scary part is there's there's tens of millions of Americans that were cheering for it. Exactly. We didn't see that as much up here. So up here, there was a different mindset. There were people that were trying to put restrictions. Like, for example, one of the more Alaskan reason, or, uh, examples is they tried shutting down bear hunting. You're going to tell me I can't go out in the woods and go bear hunting because I might get COVID from the bears. Like, <laughs> really? we are as social distance as it you could possibly get. I can guarantee you most of the U.S. aren't this social distance. <laughs> and so examples like that coming out of our governing body. Luckily, a lot of people stood up and were like, no, this is not going to happen. And um, our elected officials listened to us. They're like, okay, you're right. You can go bear hunting. Jeez. <laughs> so You're right. Uh, that maybe was kind of stupid. Exactly. So that was like some of the examples that we had up here of government coming in being like, this is for your safety. You can't go bear hunting. It's I hope you enjoyed this episode. I had a little bit longer one in mind, but I'm sure as a lot of us can understand living in the country, sometimes the power goes out or you lose internet. That's what happened here. So please go check out Eskimo Libertarian on whatever social media is your drug of choice. I'll make sure I drop plenty of links in the show notes. This episode has been sponsored by C90 Ocean Minerals. Visit C90.com to find a distributor near you or call to request a quote today. That's S-E-A-9-0.com. And don't forget to mention that Ranching Reboot sent you. Have a great week, y'all.